Amen. And turn, please, to the book of Romans. Lord willing, we'll deal with the first seven verses today after uh, a brief introduction about the book and, and what it's about. Uh, many, many uh, conservative commentators have said that Romans is the best and most organized example of Pauline doctrine. What is Pauline doctrine? It's biblical doctrine, and the Apostle Paul was used by God to give us uh, this uh, great book, and may the Lord help us as we look into it ourselves. So let's just read the first seven verses to get started. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Now, there's a lot there. But uh, we're not going to really spend the four, five, six weeks on it that we could, because every theme that's there is somewhere else in the book. And so we will highlight it today, and we'll look therein and see, but uh, these are things that we're going to hear as we work our way through. And um, like I said, probably the best and most well-organized presentation of the gospel uh, that we find in the Bible in one particular place, and Paul did this purposely under the inspiration of the Spirit. Notice what it says in verse 15, so much so as, so as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. But he wasn't in Rome, and he couldn't preach to them. He hoped to go to Rome one day and to preach to them and to see their faces and for them to see his but he's going to preach to them through the inspired Word of God. And that's what we look at today, too. And just about every heresy that exists in the church uh, and even in secular realms has to deal, has, has really been dealt with over the centuries through the Book of Romans. Heresies such as works righteousness. We're going to make God love us more by all the things that we do for him. No, cannot be. Christian friend, how could God love you more? You serve him because he does love you. We love him because he first loved us. Legalism is taken care of by the book of Romans. Very much works righteousness. And the opposite of legalism is also there. The apostle Paul was accused of being an antinomian. An antinomian is one that doesn't believe in the law of God. Believe that Christians can do whatever so ever they would wish to do. And uh, may it be such that Christians do whatsoever they wish to do, because our wishes have been changed. Our hearts have been changed by the Lord himself. And so that would be great. But, um, you know, antinomianism is uh, a cause of, well, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And Paul says, no, that's not the way it is, and that's not the gospel that we preach. In fact, um, that very idea there is that uh, sin all that you can, because grace covers sin, 
and the more you sin, the more grace you get. Oh, that, that is backwards. That is very much backwards thinking, as I know that you know. So we'll see positive doctrine, positive doctrine from the book of Romans, which refutes so many heresies and errors by proclaiming the truth. And so we saw, like I said, that this is a presentation of the gospel. He had been hindered in God's providence by coming to them in Rome, and he desired with all of his heart to see them, and he would. But sometimes we get the desires of our heart in ways that we didn't always desire. And the Apostle Paul would see the Romans as he was arrested and put on trial and taken from Jerusalem to Rome in chains, shipwrecked and almost died, but God preserved him and preserved all that were with him in the boat and then made its way to Rome where he spent two years under house arrest and was able to entertain all the visitors that came to him and to preach the gospel to them. And of course, uh, those of the church in Rome, we can assume would, would go to him often. Under house arrest, the gospel still went forth in Rome. And then back in prison, the gospel still went forth to those in Caesar's household those that were chained to the Apostle Paul. Nobody was ever really chained to the... Uh, Paul was never really chained to anybody. The prisoners or the soldiers were always chained to him. And so when they're chained to the Apostle Paul, one on each side, chained to him, they're going to hear the gospel all day long and maybe all night long. And you know the Lord used that to save so many of them. And that's just the way God works. We need to look to him. We need to trust him that he knows what he's doing. And Paul understood that. Well, you know, uh, with all that being said and done, uh, let's go on to the date and place of writing. Now, Paul didn't start this church. Um, he'd never been to that church. He'd never been to Rome. Uh, he never went to see Peter. It's a joke. <laughs> he saw Peter, but he didn't see him in Rome. He, he saw him and rebuked him elsewhere. You know, we, whether Peter ever went to Rome or not, uh, we don't know, and so we won't, uh, yeah, you know, speculate on that. But Paul didn't start this church. Never visited Rome. Uh, probably knew many of the saints who were there uh, because all roads led to Rome, and so Paul would meet people in other places. They would make their way to Rome. And so Paul knew of them. And so we find a large collection of Christians, men and women, being greeted by Paul in chapter 16. And I look forward to preaching through uh, chapter 16, because some of those names we know, and we can find them elsewhere in the New Testament, some of those people that Paul greets. Some of them are absolutely unknown to us, but known to God. And Romans chapter 16 almost becomes a New Testament hall of faith. Just like Romans 11 is an Old Testament hall of faith of believers, those that trust in God. And so the names are given, and the names also tell us something else. Some of those were Jewish people, and some of them were Gentile people. And you could tell by their names, uh, which were which, by and large, as you read there through, and of course, the first three chapters of Romans has to do with Jew and Greek alike, 
and all being under sin and all needing, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving grace. Well, here was a church that was made up of Jew and Gentile alike. And Paul uh, addresses both of them. So Paul would make it to Rome, as I said. Paul would arrive in Rome, and uh, not in the way that he so wished, but there to serve the Lord. And then we get a hint of the timing here. He probably wrote this, the timing and um, the place of authorship, which probably took some time, by the way, to, to write this epistle. But uh, we get a little hint from Romans 16, from a lady named Phoebe. Now, Phoebe was a godly woman, and uh, sometimes she's called a deaconess. And that really isn't fair, because I don't believe there is a biblical office of deaconess in the Scriptures. There certainly are servants of the Lord that are women. Absolutely. And the ministry of women is a tremendous thing and a very important thing. But um, there's elders, there's deacons, and then some have deaconesses. But it's kind of interesting, even the very language of what Paul says about Phoebe wouldn't... Uh, tell us that we should institute an office of deaconess. Certainly we want ladies to serve the Lord, and in the church there's so many things that can be done. But um, as he calls her a servant, it's the word dikonon. Dikonon is a masculine term. He wasn't saying that Phoebe was a man. But you can use in the Greek, you can use the masculine to encompass women and men together. You can do that. But if we wanted to have a deaconess, a formal office, we would use the feminine, just like we do in English. Deacon, deaconesses. Paul doesn't do that. So I don't believe he's establishing a, another office that we don't find elsewhere in the scriptures. She's a servant of the Lord, and it's likely she's commended to the Roman church, not because she'd ever been to Rome herself. Uh, she's from Centuria, and being from Centuria, which is just a little bit north of Corinth, she, and being a lady of means, she was probably the one who was given the epistle of Romans, and uh, to deliver it to Rome, and so Paul commends her so that uh, the Romans know that this is a legitimate letter from the Apostle Paul, and he's communicating with them. So there's a really, most commentators that I've read believe that it was Phoebe who physically delivered this letter to those in Rome. Now, as far as guessing when the book was written, um, probably during his time in Corinth, that would make sense too. And uh, we do know from history that the Jews were expelled from Rome in 49 AD. You know, uh, the, the Caesar just uh, made them all leave, and they were gone, you know, and they scattered and they dispersed, just like they dispersed from Jerusalem earlier and went into all the world. They dispersed from Rome, but then they start coming back, and we can see that there were Jews there in, in Rome. So it must have been at the earliest, probably 54 AD, or maybe 59 A.D., it doesn't matter. It's somewhere in that time span, uh, it's written. And, of course, the Apostle Paul gave his life probably about 65, 66 A.D. and went to the Lord. So 
you know, one more thing to say by way of introduction, then we get right into the text. It's likely, on such a huge city as Rome, and it was very large, that there was more than one congregation in Rome. And so it's written to the church at Rome instead of the churches at Rome. But uh, don't let that bother you. Uh, no doubt this was a, a letter circulated amongst all those in Rome. And we kind of see this uh, in verse 7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. So they probably had multiple congregations there, usually meeting in homes uh, at that particular time. So now with that being said and done, let's start with verses 1 and 2, okay? Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Um, well, those of you that, that read commentaries or, or work through more technical material know that um, the scholars will find just about anything they can to cause problems, you know. They'll look for this, they'll look for that, they'll look for something new, you know, trying to be novel, trying to, to say something that no one's ever said before. I'm um, not sure that's even possible anymore. Uh, Spurgeon said the only thing new in theology is that which is false. And so it's probably true that, that uh, it's all been said. And uh, what we can do is learn from, from those in the past. But the fact that Paul is the author of Romans is almost, and I have to say almost, because there's always somebody out there, but almost universally accepted. There really was an Apostle Paul. You'll have people argue that, that Jesus didn't exist. I've never heard anybody argue that the Apostle Paul didn't exist. Uh, probably been done. I just haven't heard it. But um, here's a case where liberal scholars, along with conservative, uh, agree. Okay, Paul wrote this. This is Pauline theology. And so as we look through the other epistles of Paul, uh, we would find them lining up with the things that Paul's saying here. But you know what? What Peter writes lines up with what's in here. What James writes lines up with what's in here. You know, what, what the Gospels write lines up with here. Because God inspired the Word. But how God inspired the Word, to be blunt, is a mystery. It is a mystery. It was written by men using their own personalities, using their own vocabularies, using their own knowledge, and of course, studies, and um, it comes out perfect. The Word of God comes out perfect. And, and some have trouble with that. They can't understand how that could be. So let's call inspiration a mystery, you know, because it is. And if you try to explain a mystery, you'll come up with something like this, that uh, as the men sat down to write, they went into a trance, and God told them what to write. And so they're not even writing their own words. They're writing exactly what God tells them to write. It's called mechanical dictation. And it's not correct. And it's not right. And it's not the way that God inspired his scriptures. God is more powerful than that. God is more sovereign than that. And God can take human beings and have them write something that's perfect without having to dictate every word to them. They write it in their own style, they write it in their own way, and come out with absolute truth and perfect. And that's what the Word of God is, you know. And so, 
what we have here in the book of Romans isn't just for the Romans, just as Philippians isn't just for those in Philippi and, and Corinthians isn't just for those in Corinth. It's written to them and for them and for us through all the ages. And so here we see Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. That's his usual greeting. He loves to call himself a bond servant. Here, though, in Romans, he doesn't make any defense of his apostleship. He doesn't appear to have anybody that is saying that Paul is a false apostle, don't listen to him. He makes no defense like he occasionally has to do. He asserts that he was called by God to be an apostle and that he was set apart or separated to the gospel of God. Bondservant. You know what a bondservant is, right? Bondservant's a slave, you know? He's a bondservant for obedience, but he's called by commission. And he didn't call himself to be an apostle. He was called by God for the proclamation of the gospel. You know, it's really amazing to me as I, I contemplated this. Um, in history, uh, so many lives are lived, and 99% of the lives that are lived, you never hear about them. They lived lives just like you and I are living lives, but you never hear about them. You don't know who they are. A hundred years from now, they're basically forgotten. If you don't believe me, go to Bellevue Cemetery and go to the older part there, and you'll see gravestones that no one has looked at in years. Yeah. And the only care that those gravestones have had is from the gardeners that uh, help take care of things. But then you go to other graves in the more modern part, and you see flowers that are being left and people that are still being remembered. Well, it's very doubtful that most of us will be remembered very long, to tell you the truth. But here's a Pharisee. How many Pharisees do we know? You might be able to come up with three or four if we were to poll the congregation. Okay, three or four Pharisees. You might be able to come up with those names. Here's just a Pharisee. A respected guy. And educated, yes. But here's a guy that we still talk about today, and we still know who he is, and we still read his writings that are inspired writings, and he becomes the doctor of the church. Yeah, don't know if he had a doctorate, but he's the doctor of the church nonetheless. This rather plain-looking man who probably had an eye disease, and so in some ways it was a little unpleasant to look at him with the running eyes and such like that, short in stature, maybe even balding. Can God use bald-headed men? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Okay. Well, God used him, that's for sure. A Pharisee of the Pharisees and still well-known today, the most well-known Pharisee of all time, who serves King Jesus called to declare to the nations personally and through his writings forever. A bondservant, but he's also an ambassador. You know what an ambassador is? He doesn't use that term in Romans, but he does call himself an ambassador to the Corinthians and to the Ephesians. He's an ambassador for Christ. An ambassador is one who serves the nation or serves the king or whoever it is that he's representing. 
Uh, we still have that today. We have ambassadors today. Think about the ambassadors to the United Nations. They are not supposed to serve their own agenda, but they serve at the pleasure of the president who appoints them to be an ambassador. And so the ambassadors, as the president changes, the ambassadors change. And, and, it's, and that's at the United Nations. On a more nation-to-nation -nation level, they may not be quite as partisan as that, but they still represent the United States of America. Paul is an ambassador serving the king of kings and serving the kingdom just as an ambassador represents his country or her country in a formal way. And if you notice, it says, um, which he promised beforehand, verse number two, which he promised beforehand, through the prophets God promised Messiah was coming. Now, as Paul writes, he has come and must be declared to all. And I just exhort you, my friend, to, to read your Bible daily, uh, to read it, uh, you know, if you can't read it daily, try to get 15 minutes chinked out of your life, you know, read it. For sure, read it. And as you read the Old Testament, which you ought to read along with the New, look for Christ, because he's the Messiah, the promised one who will make all things new. As you look on your outline, I'd just like to, to read you a quote from Professor J.B. Fesco, who's at Westminster a seminary in California, and he wrote this about uh, the Old Testament. He says, Messiah was the one who would restore God's rule and authority to a fallen, rebellious creation. He would bring the raging and plotting nations under subjection to his authority. Taken from Psalm 2. The Messiah was the one who would sit at the right hand of God and rule in the midst of his enemies. Indeed, he was equal to Yahweh, Psalm 110. You can look that up. And the Lord's servant would be anointed to bring the good news to the poor and bind up the brokenhearted and herald freedom to those imprisoned in captivity, Isaiah 61.1. As we go through the book of Romans, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to be walking back into the Old Testament because the Apostle Paul never gave up being a Jew. He knew his Old Testament well. And because he knew his Old Testament well, God used that as he writes his New Testament books. And he shows, here's Messiah, and here is how the Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled. So we'll be making a lot of trips back into the Old Testament in this particular series. Haven't done it so much yet, uh, because we're just introducing, just giving an introduction right now. Verses 3 and 4. And uh, promised through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Stop there just for a minute. The Bible has more than one way to use the word flesh. Sometimes, and Paul has more than one way to use the word flesh. Sometimes we talk about the flesh and the flesh lusting against the spirit. Okay, so we're talking about something that's evil, something that's wrong, something that has to be beaten down and put into subjection. And flesh can, can be just like that. But you know what? It doesn't always mean that. And it certainly doesn't mean that here. You and I are made of flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ was made of flesh. The incarnate God. And of the seed of David, according to 
the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Do you see the Trinity there? You'll never find the word Trinity in the Bible, but the truth of the Trinity is throughout the Bible. All you just have to do is look. And concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, who? God the Father, of course. Jesus Christ, our Lord, you know, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. Well, there's others that will say that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. I assure you that he did. But uh, even if he didn't, the Apostle Paul certainly lets us know that uh, he is the Son of God. But Jesus declared himself to be the Son of God many, many times. Uh, he accepted, think about the man born blind, for instance. You know, uh, who is he, Lord, that I may worship him and know him and follow him? And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. And he fell down and worshipped him. And if Jesus Christ is not God, he's not Lord, then he caused that man to be an idolater. And he himself was sinful to accept worship. We don't find anyone in the Bible, the men, just human men, accepting worship. They tried to worship Paul. He refused to let them worship him. We, no, it's always worship God. Worship God. Christ accepted worship. He's of the royal line of David. That's important. If there's one theme that cuts through the entire Old Testament, it's the fact that David will have a son that will sit on the throne and rule and reign. In fact, let me just take you there real fast. We've got time. Second Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7. Read it pretty much without comment because it, it pretty much speaks for itself. In, in Sunday school, we've, we've stopped the series for a while. We'll go back to it. We've been teaching on covenants. We haven't got to the Davidic covenant yet, but uh, here is the Davidic covenant. This is where it exists, and um, it's the promises that are made, and it's all about Christ. By the way, uh, the Hebrew is Mashiach, which is the same thing as in the Greek Christ. Jesus the Mashiach, Jesus the Christ. As it says here in Second Samuel 7, verse 8, this is um, Nathan the prophet being told what he needs to tell David. Start with verse 8. You can go back further if you want to. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over Israel. And I've been with you wherever you've gone. And I've cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And of course, we still talk about David today. You know. Moreover, I'll appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. Remember, we just come out of a series of judges. Look how often they were oppressed. Look how difficult things were for them. They would turn to idols, and the Lord would punish them. They'd turn their heart back to the Lord, and the Lord would restore them. And oh, that they would have stayed restored. But they didn't. Back into idolatry they went again. 
since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. <clears throat> it's interesting in the Hebrew, the way that reads. David wanted to build a house to the Lord, build a temple. God said, no, you're not going to build the temple. You're a bloody man. And you've uh, caused a lot of bloodshed, but your son will build the temple. And he did. But the Lord says, you want to build me a house? I'll tell you what, I'm going to build you a house. And the idea here in the Hebrew is sons and daughters. I'm going to build you a dynasty, basically, is what God is saying. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be a father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I'll chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, when I removed from, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that's the Davidic covenant. You know, Israel went all through the period of judges without a king. Samuel actually was the last judge, you know, and um, then he anointed Saul. Sometimes people say, give us a king that, that we can, you know, be like the other nations. Yep, Saul will make you just like the other nations. That's exactly what happened, you know. And, of course, um, God then brought the man after his own heart, David, to be king. Well, as prophecy often does, it, it often uh, confuses us because it speaks about two things at the same time. Two different things are being said here in the Davidic covenant. There's an earthly promise that, yeah, your, your dynasty is going to continue, and the next king will be Solomon, and uh, I'll love him if he, if he sins, I'll punish him. And he did. But you know, when he punished Solomon, because Solomon actually turned into an idolater himself. As the Lord sent the prophet to Solomon, says, I'm going to rend the kingdom from you because of your sin. But because of the faithfulness of my servant David, I won't take it all away. I'll spare a portion for you. But it wasn't because of Solomon. It was because of David and the Davidic covenant. And so we have Solomon being spoken about here but a house and a kingdom that will be established forever before your throne. Obviously, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. And uh, he rules and reigns today from heaven and will always be the king, the king that never dies. You read the book of Kings, you read the book of Chronicles, and, and as you're doing your devotional reading and you get through those books, one of the things you'll notice that happens, sometimes there's a faithful king, and things go well, at least in Judah there is. The northern kingdoms never had a faithful king. Every one of them were idolaters. Every one of them were wicked. Every one of them, as best we can tell, uh, never knew the Lord at all. Not at all. You know. 
They even had prophets go to them, Elijah and Elisha, prophets in the northern kingdom. Few believed, very few believed. But Judah had good kings, and Judah had bad kings. And whenever a bad king was there, you'd notice the Lord would send a prophet talking about how uh, they were going to be punished and destroyed. But he said, because of my loving kindness to David, my steadfast love to David, they will not be wiped out. The Babylonian captivity looked like it wiped them out. It certainly did put um, the, the dynasty in grave danger. The dynasty was so important because this is the line of Christ we're talking about. But uh, Satan did not prevail. Instead, what happens? A young virgin girl, maybe 15, 16 years old, you know, has an angel visitor. And so you're going to have a child who will be great and son of the highest. How, how can that be? I, I'm not married. I don't know a man. Power of the Lord will come upon you. And it will be my son, the Lord's son, that you will bear. And very much Mary's son, too, believe me. Jesus Christ and the flesh, you know. And that's what we looked at already. And go back to Romans. We're almost done. Go back to Romans. Born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. Luke is very careful to let us know that Mary was a direct descendant of David. And his supposed father, Joseph, was also a direct descendant of David. Only God could work in such marvelous ways. But he does, because he had it planned out from eternity past. And so, uh, we see there, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, in, as promised in the Scriptures, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. And there is what proves that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In fact, I'll go so far as to tell you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is when he was inaugurated to be king. That was his great inauguration. On earth, a few times they tried to take him to make him king, but that was never going to work. He had a job he had to do. He had a mission he had to fulfill. And when he did fulfill that mission, then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God ruling and reigning and needing to be worshipped for all time. In fact, the Bible tells us this. Uh, he's king of kings, Lord of lords. And uh, there's a psalm that often is um, misunderstood because Psalm 2, verse 7 says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And some have tried to use that verse to prove that Jesus Christ uh, is a created being. That's not what it means at all. In fact, we won't turn there for lack of time. But you can look up Acts 13 a little bit later. And near the end of Acts 13, you'll find the Apostle Paul quoting Psalm 2-7 and explaining that it's all about the resurrection as a fulfillment of Psalm 2, verse 7. So we conclude with verses 5 through 7. 
Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Paul was called to be an apostle. Paul was called to be a Christian. And Christian friends, you've been called by God too. You've been called by God, you know. He chose you. Look down to you. Called to be saints. That's what it says, you know, who are the called of Jesus Christ. It's his work. And the work that's done is the election of the Father, and then the redeeming work of the Son, and then the application by the Holy Spirit coming to us and changing our hearts and taking us from darkness to light and showing us the truth as only He can. Well, Paul's on a mission, as we said. He's on the King's mission. He preaches forgiveness of sins by the sacrificial life and death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's grace alone we're going to see. It's faith alone. We'll read it over and over. It'll never get old. We'll tell it over and over. It'll never get old. We'll hear it again and again. It'll never get old because it's the power of God into salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the book of Romans presents the gospel in which we stand. The gospel, the good news that brings eternal life. Every other way is a false gospel. Every other way is bad news, not good news. It leads to death. Some people work so hard at their religion. They suffer so much for their religion. And their religion is leading them to death. God says, rest in me. Come to Christ. Trust in him. Believe in him. You can't do it on your own. It's impossible. But there's never been a person that's called out in saving faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And God said, no, I don't want anything to do with you. You know, The only people that call out in saving faith to Jesus Christ are those that give up on themselves and look to him alone. And that's what we need to do. And that's what I exhort you to do. And Christian friend, you need the gospel. I need the gospel because we forget that. And sometimes we think we can make God love us more by the things that we do. No, no, that, that can never happen. But we serve him because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. So lost people, I'd turn you to, to Psalm 2. If you don't know if you're a Christian, read Psalm 2 this afternoon, please. It's, it's short, but it's powerful. And when you understand the Son is Jesus Christ from Psalm 2, then I pray that you would bow your knee to him. We'll be exploring the gospel in its richness and its fullness over the next several months. May God enlighten our eyes by the Holy Spirit and drive the truth of salvation by grace alone deep into our hearts. Let's look to the Lord in prayer.
Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we thank you that we can turn to the pages of Scripture and see them and understand them and have our eyes opened to the truth. May Jesus Christ receive for himself all the glory. We know that from the book of Romans, from the entirety of Scripture, we see that he alone is glorious. He alone is worthy. Father, every Christian can lay claim to the fact that they are in Christ. They are in the Beloved. The Father's faith shines upon us because he, it shines upon his Son. And in love, Father, in love you draw us to yourself through your Son by your Spirit. So, Lord, you are one, and yet there's three persons in the Godhead. We can't explain that. We won't try to explain it. We won't do any more than what the Apostle Paul did today in the verses 3 and 4, and just simply stated to be fact, there is a Father who sent his Son, and the Spirit bears witness of that truth. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.